There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I have my PhD in history, but I'm an expert in whooping it up. Woohoo! White gloves and dirty documents. That's how this historian gets down. I am JMZ. I'm a doctor, and my prescription is more shade. Hello, welcome back to Historians on Housewives. You're here with me, Casey. Dr. Jane Mill, the millionaireist. Max Beer. In this episode, we chat with our guest, Carly Silver, about the practice of doing public history and the ways that her work with cultural hybridization and Bronze Age Mari intersects with themes found in soap operas, romance novels, and reality television. The first part of the episode contextualizes practices in Bronze Age Mari and explains curse tablets as a primary source. In particular, one major theme addressed is the practice of forging alliances and building empire through marrying off the daughters of Zimri Lin in Mari. In the second half, after the Bunko Party game break, Carly Silver offers examples of how her work resonates with Vanderpump Rules, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, and the Real Housewives of Orange County. So with that, Carly Silver is a public historian and summa cum laude graduate of Barnard College, Columbia University. Carly Silver has written for Hyperallergic, Life Films Quarterly, BBC News, History Today, Smithsonian, Atlas Obscura, The Atlantic, Narratively, ThoughtCo, slash about.com, for which she served as the ancient classical history expert, archaeology, biblical archaeology, Eidolon, and All That's Interesting, among many other publications. She has delivered papers at academic conferences from Wales to California on topics as varied as family arguments in Bronze Age Syrian letters and North African cuisine in Roman Britain. When Carly isn't headed to a museum or lecture, she resides in Brooklyn, New York. Read her work at carlysilver.com and follow her on Twitter at Carly A. Silver and on Instagram at Bespeckled Legend. So with that... Welcome to the show, Carly Silver. Thanks so much for being here with us today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. We are so excited to be able to chat with you. And before we get into it, can you share your Real Housewives tagline with us? Well, okay. So just a little bit of backstory. I am not the most concise person. So I had to, I went through like five different options. This is the shortest one I could come up with. My tagline would be, you're going to curse me out. At least ask a God to turn my bowels to water on a curse tablet. Now, 
the context for that will be forthcoming. But I literally, for the life of me, I don't know how they do it when marketing comes up with these things. There are like housewives tagline generators. And I was trying some of those. Okay, so my, I'm a public historian and my academic background, in particular in undergrad, was working on cultural hybridization in Romano-British magic, basically. So looking in particular at the cursed tablets found in Roman Bath, the city of modern Bath, ancient Aquasulis, and there were these, the phenomenon of cursed tablets in which you'd, uh, you know, ask a god to, on a very small piece of metal, usually lead, inscribe um, a curse, basically asking the god to, um, you know, recover a stolen item for you, or curse um, a rival in the law courts, or, or a charioteer of the one team you didn't like, or in this case, a love curse, you would say, you know, may you bind their bowels, may you... Um, you know, may their bowels turn to water. I don't know why it really is the bowels, but, um, you know, may their body be like fire until they love me or until their love rival, you know, disappears or something. And then you bury it deep in the ground where the gods often is sort of the spirit of the underworld, a sort of infernal deity or God with connection to deep down somewhere could find it. So what I wanted to take from here is that you get like the sassness is like, if you're going to curse me out, you know, like, you get, like, a Jersey Housewives tag, and, like, at least do it to my face or something like that. But what I wanted to sort of play with is, like, you know, at least have the decency to not curse me out to my face, but to have, you know, spend your money to ask a scribe to inscribe this very small piece, dedicate it to a god, and pay the good money. Because, you know, the one thing you don't want to be seen as, as on the Housewives is, is cheap, right? Even if you are still trying to launch She by Charay. <laughs> um, uh, however many years he's been into Atlanta. So admittedly, it's a little quite obscure, but it was just, I had too many fun, too much fun doing this basically. I love it. I like all the thought that went into it. Coming up with taglines is yeah. difficult. It's always a challenge. It is. And, you know, again, it gives me more, even more respect for whether it's the Bravo celebrities or the, people that work for the network that have to come up with this stuff because it's hard. I mean, I spent 10 years writing back cover copy for romance novels and that, you know, amongst other things, working in publishing. And uh, I can tell you, it's very hard to be catchy and original sometimes. Wow. I love it. I'm like so interested in all of the things that you do as a public historian. And so I can't, <laughs> I can't wait to get into it. So let's jump right in and talk about your academic journey. What do you work on and how has your journey evolved to get to where you are now? Sure. So at the moment, I'm a digital content editor working um, as a, in my freelance time as a public historian, a turf writer, which is writing about the thoroughbred horse racing world, a soap opera editor, and occasional editor of many other things. So None of, all of these things are fairly disparate. Some of them will touch over like soaps and Bravo with the drama and, um, you know, Andy Cohen's love for all my children and the soap stars that are on, on the shows. Others of them, they're just things that I'm passionate about. And I've made a you know side hustle, basically a side career of working on the stuff outside my day job. So if none of it seems to connect, the only thing that connects them all really is me. So feel free to be baffled if that, if that does happen. So I graduated from Barnard College at Columbia University in 2012. I majored in religion, minored in classics, and my passion was really looking at the ways in which cultural artifacts would blend in 
like a colonial setting. So looking at Roman Britain in particular was something I was fascinated by, looking at these curse tablets, which are a very phenomenon that we know really were popular in the ancient Mediterranean, coming over to Britain, and they're dealing with very specific local concerns in the text from that. So that for me was, you could sort of tell where each individual side was coming from. They merged together to form this new cultural artifact that I found fascinating. You know, I graduate. I Academia wasn't a route that was going to work for me at the time. I just, and I so admire the devotion of those that are, especially go into fields that are history related or humanities related because it is a tremendous, as I'm sure you all know better than I would, it is such a tremendous commitment, but I really wanted to, if I could have the best of both worlds and start working. So I went into book publishing, which is a very uh, unique field of its own, but I kept freelancing. First, I started out doing like um, sort of pithy, fun mythological content for the Cliff Notes type website, and then sort of evolved from there. And what I built was a fun but engaging and insightful persona that would sort of take a buzzseed sensibility, but also, you know, sometimes it's the tone if the article calls for it, but then also looking seriously at how the ancient world and the modern world relate. You know, I spoke at a conference, I think it was two years ago now, it was a virtual conference at UC Dublin called What Have the Ancients Done for Us? And what I really, my answer to that question was, let me show you. By showing the, by by being able to show the similarities in human nature and in circumstance sometimes between, you know, people from thousands of years ago to now, I feel like that contextualizes history and makes it less foreign, maybe makes it even relatable. Now, that some situations are never fully, you know, there's a lot of differences and you can't always say one plus one equals two because time and space and all that. But I think being able to allow sort of sit at the juncture of like the armchair historian and the academic translating the research from one group into something relatable to the other and then hooking the other and maybe wanting them to go, maybe making them want to go read more is what I really pride myself on. And it's been a fabulous opportunity to be, you know, constantly pitching and, you know, sometimes hopefully getting some articles and have, you know, been able to work with a lot of fabulous editors and historians over the years. And it's, really been a wonderful journey. This is amazing. Um, I want to keep going down this through this discussion of public history versus the academic routes. And it seems like at least once a week, there's a huge social media discourse about, you know, the ivory tower versus public history as people are trying to stake out the right way (laughs) to operate within the academy, right? What is the right way to do history? So I was hoping that you could tell us more about the practice of doing public history and what that means to you and how all of these projects and freelance things you do bridge this gap between academics and armchair historians. It's a great question. I think it's one that for me is constantly evolving. You know, there are many universities that now offer public history as a course or as a degree or, you know, engage in different ways, but often those are affiliated with universities. And I think one thing that I love about the work that I do in as a freelancer is being able to, is, is sort of the challenge that I face by not having university affiliation. Of course, I'm a graduate, but, you know, 
it sort of forces you to think more creatively. And it also does mean you're coming a bit from the outside because it does mean you're not networking. You're not constantly engaged in the newest debates as much as you may try. And it's sort of, there is a, quite a bit of imposter syndrome sometimes because, you know, some folks may not see what I do as engaging in history or engaging in a, in a way that is, is as meaningful as some other contributions. And if that's their point of view, then that would be fair if that's how they feel. I disagree. And I feel that a lot of, especially a lot of academics are now sort of being asked to pivot to the public history sector. I think there are a lot of people in the academy that do it incredibly well. Like you look like, doc, look at Dr. Sarah Bond, you look at, oh goodness, Dr. Jeremy Swift, um, Maya Lee Chin, who's just um, got a book deal to write about experience being um, a black classicist. And it's just, there's so many people that are like brilliant and doing this very, very well. But without having that back, you know, and actually Maya Lee, I don't know, if she, I don't know what, I know she's a more recent graduate. I'm not sure if she's affiliated with an institution at the moment, but I think that there's room now for a plurality and it always has been, but there's room for a lot of discussion about what being historian means. And in my mind, I like to sort of use the example of Greg Jenner, who I'm not sure um, is uh, familiar with. He's, um, he's a historian based out of the UK who, who does horrible histories sort of his big project but he's also written books he's done podcasts he's done shows and he's incredibly successful and incredibly hardworking. very nice guy and what he tries to do is figure out who his audience is whether it's kids with the horrible histories whether it's he has a podcast called you're dead to me where it's he has a comedian a historian is yes and it's sort of you know making fun but also educating and he really caters his material and his research to specific audiences and makes people want to read about history. The number of adults that I know, especially in the UK, that like horrible histories, just as much as their kids do, is tremendous. I think he really succeeds in relating history of any period to whatever he wants to be talking about. He actually has a book on the history of celebrity that I think uh, could be really relevant for uh, just general research, especially when talking about broad celebrities. But I think that is the type of approach I try and take is figure out who my audience is, what my point is, because I want to have, you know, I want to be tying whatever I'm talking about into something that is relevant and current. So, and also seeing, making sure that that isn't something that is too much of a stretch. So, you know, the curse tablets is something I'm really passionate about and something that I've, um, uh, I worked on in undergrad and still continue to try and maintain, uh, you know, correspondence with communities working on that. But one of the things that thinking at Bath is that there were a lot of complaints to the gods written on these tablets that people got their stuff stolen. And that's a primary, you see this a lot in Britain in particular. And one of the theories behind that is there's a phenomenon in Roman literature and society called the bathhouse seat. Basically thinking that there were, if you didn't have enough money to either have an enslaved person on your in your home, watch your stuff when you went to change the bathhouse or pay someone on site to watch your stuff, your stuff was going to get stolen. Now, I don't know about you. I have always been terrified of myself getting stolen in a gym locker. And thankfully now locks are an option, but if you, you know, leave your stuff in a gym locker and you forget to lock it, you could be screwed. Now it's still very much, or if you can't afford it, you know, there, there are so many prohibitive 
things, you know, that in these types of scenarios that it's, you know, the way we may deal with it is different, but the idea of clinging to a God to punish whoever did this to you, someone stole something versus, you know, maybe talking to another authority, in this case, maybe the police or the venue, people who work at the gym or something, it's not that different, really. And then, you know, although a lot of gyms have you waive your rights to, um, you know, to sort of get stuff back. But I think some, because a lot of basic human concerns are the same. I think it's just that, you know, the language about which we, with which we discuss them is, and the context is very different, right? So knowing the two are not exactly going to be the same, but trying to find the relatable emotions that, because the sense of frustration, despair, in the case of the bath tablets, even the smaller, like uh, monetary amounts of things stolen or indicates that maybe these were people who were a little bit poorer and like really had to cough up money to even pay to the God to get this to dedicate a tablet to them. So the idea of, you know, people being forced to try and reach out to regional justice centers, like, like, you know, a divine authority when maybe they, the local, you know, whatever the Roman version of the cops were in the area didn't have their back. That's all stuff that, you know, centers of power, not always paying attention to specific groups as a, or, you know, treating people fairly. That's pretty relatable in many different ways. Obviously, Obviously, it's not exact. It's not exactly the same as in a lot of different things. But I think people can relate to feeling helpless or feeling like they're not being heard. And so, trying to be heard in other ways, in a you know, in terms of appealing to the divine, is particularly interesting. We want to set up some key terms for the episode. Um, specifically, can you talk about the concept of cultural hybridiz- hybridization? Sure. Let's just pretend so, we don't know what it is. Let's pretend we don't know. Sure. Let's set it up for the listeners. So in the years since I've done extensive work on this, I think that the dialogue has probably, you know, continued to advance and there's been a lot more input. So, which I think is a wonderful thing. I think, you know, the, the, the term hybridization, of course, implies, you know, the melding of separate concepts and piece of cultural, obviously it's, um, uh, you know, different cultural artifacts sort of blending together to maybe become a new artifact case of bath it's you know getting a, a the sort of the mediterranean phenomenon of the curse table but with the very local british concerns and local british gods like but almost like most of the things we have the tablets that talk about theft are in britain so it seems to be a very local concern you can't all it's nearly impossible to extrapolate the this definitely originated here and is different from what originated here but i think what i also want to mention in terms of these this term in particular is that it's not something that's done in a vacuum. This is something that's done in this particular case out of colonialism and conquest. And so, for example, in Roman Britain, this is done because the Romans came in, conquered, and imposed, you know, a lot of cultural, I mean, imposed political, religious, lots of different hegemonies on the people there. And I think that the two aren't like equal forces coming in now. In the case of the curse tablet, I don't know exactly what would have, we don't know what, why somebody, you know, how it was introduced exactly, but you can imagine that, you know, with introducing religious practices like Minerva was the goddess equated with the, mm-hmm. was probably with, with the, probably the local tutelary deity of Bath, who was King Stubbin Sulis, you know, that was probably brought in by the Romans, but this is all coming in with, um, with violence and with, you know, removal maybe of, 
of different practices or at least the very least layering, you know, layering things on top of it that are, are none of this comes in a vacuum. And I think that it's important to note. So when I talk about it as an artifact, I try and be mindful of the fact that I find it fascinating, but you know, for those who may, who were, you know, who were using these, these are things that, you know, would have emerged out of, you know, centuries worth of trauma. Wow. I think that, um, you know, I've been watching, I've been looking at a lot of graphic novels and I think mm-hmm. this bath thief is, it's ripe for a, gra- a graphic novel. Oh, so I love you're talking. I'm thinking it, I'm thinking it as a graphic novel, right? Um, I just, I think that's what I have to say. I mean, yes, it's deep in history. Yes, you can use all these theories. But I'm also, as you're talking, it's animating. It's You're animating it in my mind as well. Oh, fabulous. I love that. So you work on Bronze Age Mari and cursed tablets in Roman Britain. Can you tell us <laughs> more about um, Bronze Age Mari? Can you tell us more about the source bases and um, really dig into these cursed tablets for us? And can you start to build this connection between Bronze Age Mari, the cursed tablets, and how these things are related to soap operas and reality TV, which, you know, the Real Housewives are like the new soap opera, I think, in a lot of ways. They are, and I think that there was a great special about a year or two ago where Andy Cohen, who is uh, loves Susan Lucci, who's, you know, the grand dame of soap, said that, you know, like the Real Housewives, literally said verbatim, like the Real Housewives are the new, is the new soap or something like that. So it's very much born out of a love for the genre. So when I'm working, so Mari is a site in uh, modern Syria, um, sort of reached its apex around 1800 BCE, around the time of Hammurabi of Babylon, who actually ended up destroying the city. I'm working entirely in translation here. So I'm very aware that I'm already a couple source, a couple levels removed from those who are working on, Assyriologists who are working on these sites and interpreting them. Um, so that's all translation to English. The cursed tablets in Roman Britain were primarily in Latin, which I did some translation on my own, which was not nearly up to the snuff of those who were originally working on them, and then also working um, in translation of primary sources. So it does sort of, that's one of the things about not being in the academy, you're not being an expert in that, in the subfield where I speak the original language. So trying to be mindful of that, that there's going to be a bit of more of disconnect. So Mari, I, fell in love with as this fascinating site in undergrad. Mari was sort of was like the rival city state in um, sort of in the, one of the rival city states to Babylon was incredibly prosperous around the time under a king named Zimri Lim. And basically he and Hammurabi were like frenemies for the longest time. Eventually war broke out. Hammurabi marched on Mari, completely raised it to the ground, set it on fire, and then and took some stuff and then went back to Babylon. However, what happens when you set clay on fire? It bakes. So there is a tremendous archive that was found in the palace at Mari of, I'd say, 40-something thousand tablets. So it's one of the greatest libraries of, that survives, um, at least in part, from, you know, from antiquity. And the using library is the phrase for, like, a corpus of, of text. So there's diplomatic text, recipes, um, military terms, angsty family letters, and 
the angsty family letters are sort of what I fell in love with because you get Zimri Lim as king, you know, deploying, sending daughters out to be married to different vassal monarchs or allies. And the daughters writing back saying they're miserable. And in some cases, marrying two daughters to the same allied king and them both really jockeying for power and possibly one of the daughters murdering the other. We don't know. But there have been some suggestions that struggles for power is amongst the family went really, really far. And I think it's that type of human drama that, you know, concurs with the soap opera of it all, concurs with the real housewives of it all. And also the human emotion of it all. Because, you know, I this stuff could be straight out of, you know, what House of the Dragon is the new is the new show. It's very succession. The Curse Tablet, I think, came out of being fascinated by Roman Britain in particular. But I came the texts themselves really are, you know, they're asking the god, or generally the god or goddess of the place of, in, you know, um, they were put in water, presumably so that the goddess of the springs would be able to read them. And they were very, very small. And they would ask, generally the goddess for justice or for, you know, there are lots of kinds of cursed tablets, but they were often asking the goddess to hunt down a thief for them. Or in like, basically to get justice, maybe if they, we think maybe couldn't get it from local authorities. And the idea of this being the voice of sort of the common man as, I mean, we don't know how common these people, we don't know who any of these people were. We also have, we have to have money and proximity to a certain place to come to Bath, right? So it's maybe not the poorest of the poor, but these are records from the opposite end of the spectrum, not the royals, probably, probably people whose concerns are a little more daily. And as you know, records on history are rarely written by the average Joes. So the idea of maybe seeing a bit of what people who weren't, you know, the invaders or the rich or the powerful were concerned about was really interesting. And that's the great, you know, all the great soaps and all the great reality TV is you get the juxtaposition of sort of the various ends of society. Like at the beginning of Vanderpump Rules, right? The servers are all trying to make it and they're all scrapping and they're all sending out their resumes and going on ghosties and everything. And then counterpoint, to Lisa Vanderpump, who is wealthy and fabulous, and they all want to be her. And all of the great soaps, especially in, like, you know, the soap operas from yesteryear, would have, like, the er- Erica Kane, who was Susan Mucci's character, started out wanting to be a star. And she became a star and a society maven. But that aspirational quality, I think, is something that is very common to, um, common to soaps and reality TV. And it's sort of, you get the juxtaposition in some of this stuff as well. When it comes to the Bronze Age, can you um, give us kind of what time period are we looking at? Sure. So Bronze Age, generally, I would say about maybe 3300 BCE to about 1200 BCE. Um, In the case of what I'm looking at, I'm looking at like Eastern Syria and Mesopotamia. Um, So that time in particular around which I'm talking is about 1800. So it's sort of, you know, like the rise of some of the great law codifications in the case of Hammurabi and some of the, you know, city states really consolidating their, um, their lands into what will become like smaller empires. And, um, you know, some of the foundations of what we call, you know, urban, um, urban civilization today. And um, my only other follow-up, as you're as you're chatting about um, 
this source space and this time period is that it also really resonates um, for me with the romance novel genre. Like I'm, I'm new to the genre, but <laughs> I feel like just about every, every book I've picked up of, of as of late um, has this, um, this trope of, of marrying daughters for, for power and consolidating, yeah. you know, and it is. And it definitely, I mean, whether you've watched, well, Bridgerton less so because it's more, not really marrying for, it's more about marrying within your, you know, your social class. But I think it's interesting to see, I mean, the exact reasons and circumstances may vary, but for thousands of tens, uh, over thousands of years, what hasn't changed, right? You may not be, Zimri Lin was marrying two daughters to the, the, um, to the king of Elon Shore, who's a neighboring town, but maybe you wouldn't do thousands of years later, but still might not have had choice in the matter to whom you were married. And, you know, the idea of court rivals and things like that are, you know, are, and th- these are very much familiar for anybody who's watched, like, The Crown, for example. Again, it's naturally marrying off, but the idea of alliances and, and jockeying for power is, whether it's amongst, you know, courtiers or housewives, I think is something we all can, we've all seen before. So, Carly, how did you get into reality TV and Bravo shows? So... I, it's a great question. I was never massively into like a lot of reality shows in general. There's nothing, I just, there wasn't, I sort of found the like excessive wealth of some of like, you know, like Filthy Rich Cattle Drive was the first one I remember watching was on eBay. And that was like when Courtney Kardashian's like first entree to, to mainstream TV. And I was like, these people are so, that's the point. They're filthy rich. I sort of don't really, you know, get the what, where's the connection? I don't feel like I can relate to these people or like, why do I care to a certain degree? It's more like the simple lifestyle stuff. And what really hooked me was Vanderpump Rules because they were scrappy and young and really trying to make it, whatever that meant. And then the, and then the simultaneous drama of them all sleeping with each other's significant others and the betrayals it was really soapy. So I grew up watching soaps and loved the drama, but this, the idea that, and it was new to me, the idea that this type of drama could be happening on a, sh- a reality show. And, you know, that was my own ignorance because I just hadn't felt like I c- could connect some of the Housewives franchises just because it didn't, wasn't my demographic of, you know, of similar age or background or whatever. So then, you know, I went after watching the Vanderpump pilot, I went back and watched Beverly Hills and I was like, okay, now I get it. Because now that you sort of have like a glimpse into that world, it's not as much about well, whether you can relate. Now you want to see Lisa Vanderpump who put all, you know, who, who has the restaurant. You know, you want to see Brandy who, whose husband Sheena slept with, you know? And then it becomes more about the soap. And, you know, I think because it was raised on soap to a certain degree, I think I always knew that was at a farther remove. Like, you know, the Chancellors and Newmans in Genoa City on the Young and the Restless weren't supposed to be relatable, you know? But so then when I got to see sort of the both sides of it, and also later Housewives, not everybody is super wealthy. Some are more wealthy than others, or more wealthy than others. But really, Vanderpump was sort of the in for me. And then I started listening to the accompanying podcast. And I was just like, this is a whole, it's become a real like world unto itself, which is really fascinating. Well, this is where I kind of want to interject. And Casey was alluding to it as well. And you also mentioned it. Um, so we have the first question, like, how are the, the shows stacking up against 
other soap operas. Then we have the question of, of that I like the soap opera actresses are now in the Housewives cast, right? Yeah. Um, we also have the question about are these are are these the cast in the need in need of a shakeup? Yes. Um, <laughs> that, that's a question I'm asking you, but I'm also giving you my answer. Uh, well, well, I think it's a start great, there. I think it's a great question and a great answer. And I think, you know, for example, for anyone who watches daytime soaps at the moment, General Hospital is one of the, I think it's one of the longest running ones. And the cast right now is so bloated. That it's ridiculous, in my opinion. There are, you know, there are a lot of like legacy characters, which is like, you know, the children or grandchildren of long running heroes and heroines from decades past, which are great. But there's also, in my mind, too many extraneous characters that nobody cares about. And I think with Housewives, a lot of times you'll get, like, you know, a friend of coming back, which can be interesting. But sometimes you just get, like, Housewives, like, that are, maybe they've been in the news or maybe, like, people are supposed to care about them, but they don't. And it sense like they expect you to, because they're friends with this person or because they featured in this storyline, like Faye Resnick, right? Didn't they try and make her happen for, she was never a housewife, but they tried to sort of weave her in and it didn't work. And that's happened before. And I think if the person doesn't have really great chemistry and they sort of just sort of seem an add on, it's like, well, why don't you focus on the people that we want to see? And I think one thing, you know, the housewives in particular do really well is they do shake the cast up. And sometimes it's people wanting to leave. Sometimes it's other reasons, but they don't seem afraid to be willing to shake up the roster beyond a couple core a core couple core people on each franchise. And even then sometimes they depart and soaps, I think sometimes could stand to, to streamline like days, you know, there are a couple core characters you really care about and then focus on that, you know, rather than sort of, um, but again, being willing to, to think outside the box as well as always, um, something that's great in both genres and, you know, some of the most, you know, beloved housewives, like everybody loves Eileen Davidson. She is one of the daytime's shining lights. I know, like, folks can sometimes, same with romance novels, can sometimes be looked down on wrongfully so, in my mind, as a genre that is different or lesser than or anything like that. It takes the amount of dialogue soap stars do is ridiculous. It takes a tremendous amount of talent. Same with romance novels, the amount of books that people write and reinventing the, you know, different tropes. But Eileen, in particular, is somebody who's, like, just a superstar actress. And she's fabulous. And Rin is great. And there's so many like talented actors that I think they sometimes get like, it's like, oh, they're a soap star. And to a certain demographic, I think that has some allure. But I think some like millennials or Gen Zers, it's sort of like, oh, that implies like something that isn't desirable versus no, these are people with very long established careers. And so I think Housewives is sort of given... I always love seeing soap stars featured because I think it gives new life to those who un- like it gives new audiences to people that may not watch the young and the Restless. but then, you know, when I think didn't Erica Jane guest on an episode or something. So then maybe they'll tune in for that. So I think that there's a lot of crossover. And I think, again, the genesis of this really was Andy Cohen's love for soap, which he, you know, bless him for that. He will go on and on about how much he loves the genre. So I think that, trying to connect the two is a pretty natural um, bridge to, 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 to make. Well, I also think that the, uh, I know that people are going to be surprised that some reality shows are scripted a bit. I also think I that know. we see this in Bravo. Sh- we see this in Bravo shows. We see that 
one script works well and then we see it repeated on other on other yeah. shows. I mean, we could believe that it's all genuine or we could believe that Bravo now has a formula. I think that's a really great point. And I think that, you know, there have been, for example, Days of Our Lives this past year revisited one of its most infamous and famous storylines, A Devil Possession. And that was consciously revisited as hearkening back to the past. Now, it went on a bit long for my taste, but it, the whole point of it was bringing in new viewers because they had younger characters getting possessed while also harping back something that got a ton of press and really great ratings back in the day. That to me makes sense if it's a callback that, like, not to say I, you know, the whole script of things, debate is whether it's good or bad or whatever. You know, it makes sense if you're putting people in situations that were like, you give Teresa Judice a chair or table she's and she pushes it over that harkens back to something that people love. If you're just, if people, it isn't a memorable moment or memorable relationship and you're trying to harken back to that or, or rehash it. And even it doesn't work. And then sometimes even then people are tired, you know, they want, don't want to see the same thing. So it's a very hard, it's a very hard thing to try and reinvent the wheel. And I think soap writers and um, romance writers do it with a plum. I think they should, Honestly, they should hire some romance writers if things are scripted, because I feel like they could get some really good romantic tension down there. Although, the oh, fact that everyone's mother had dated, honestly, the, the one thing that is so soapy is that Slade, whatever his name is, Slade, has dated everybody on that question, and they dated whatever the, was it Joanne or Joanna? I think that some, I mean, there's some really great romance writers that also, you know, are big reality TV fans and have written, like, reality TV sets romances and I was like you guys should be really working for Bravo I wow that's, that's incredible I'm thinking about my other yeah I'm thinking about my other career so this might seem like a bit, little bit of a jump but I think you can make the connection um, okay you also are a horse racing journalist <laughs> so yes. do you get excited when Bravo shows horse related story arcs or any story uh, horse related story arcs on, on reality TV I do I think you know and I I love to ride whenever I can. It's not frequent because I live in a big city. <laughs> but, you know, like the Lisa Vanderpump ride, again, because Vanderpump was my entree in. So that's sort of what I go to. I think that's very charming. I think racing is still very much, in order to be involved in it as an owner or breeder or anything, you have to have a lot of money. So whether you're owning, it doesn't, to ride a horse, you don't necessarily have to because you can go to a stable and still not cheap, but you don't have to own a horse. But obviously, if you're owning a horse or you're, all of that is expensive. So I think it's something that is very tailor-made tailor to houses. Honestly, I think it would be, you know, racing, because it is so expensive, they build up these, these syndicate ownerships where it's like a bunch of people together in a group. Everybody owns a fraction. And some of them are female-focused. Some of them are just friends. I feel like there should be a Housewives one because can you imagine the amount of fun that would be if, like, the Housewives go to the track and, like, you know, or, or, you know, so, um, uh, like a lot of Hollywood names sort of like Bo Derek is very involved in equestrian stuff and is a racing, um, aftercare ambassador. So, you know, I feel like there's, it's something that can be very glamorous and there's a lot of money around and those two things go hand in hand with Bravo. So I think that there, that could be, I'd love to see them explore that. But again, unless they decide to hire me as a writer, I don't think, uh, I don't think they are necessarily coming straight to me. They're lost. 
definitely their loss. Yes, thank you. I think so too. Casey, what's next? Well, I would like to move us into our Bonko Party game break. And today I've created a game I call Curses. And you will work collectively as a panel to imagine the curses that Real Housewives have secretly wished on each other. So uh, first up uh, would be um, what curses um, does uh, Teresa Judice uh, have for, for Melissa Gorga and vice versa, Melissa Gorga for Teresa Judice? I feel like Teresa, she's very, like, as you saw with the wedding hair, she's, like, very old-school Italian Jersey. I feel like she would, like, wish that, like, all of Melissa's lasagnas turned to, like, bugs or something like that. <laughs> or, like, something like, that, like, or, like, that, like, Straganona boil her alive in a pot. I feel like she really, really would go very old-school. Or she would literally just, you know, hire a hitman and, you know, say, you know, I curse you. And then hire him. <laughs> she seems like she really means business. See, now you went much deeper than I was going to go. I was going <laughs> to give the quip. I was going to give the quip like, I mean, did you see Trey's hair during her wedding? But dump bump. I mean, it was bad. I think, it was bad. But dump bump. There were so many secrets hidden in that hair. I was like, what is it? Like, what is under there besides Snooki's old bump it? So I was like, what secrets Hilarious. are you hiding in? She could have had a whole stack of it. curse tablets up in that do. Like she you're, could have you know what? all the They're curse really, tablets. Really small. Yeah. You know what? Maybe. I mean, you know what? Again, there's there. Anything is possible. I wouldn't. I would. I wouldn't be surprised if that became like a new phenomenon. And I feel like Melissa would just say, "Go away." Just like want, like almost do like a binding curse where it would be like, you know, may like your feet not work, may your hands not. There's sort of a repetition, like basically. May your faculties not work until you do as I want. Until like you stay far away. I feel like that would be one that Melissa would just be like, you know what? I could really do without you in my life. I love it. So next up, it's it's kind of um, the latest of the Bravo news. Um, allegedly, Tom Schwartz and Raquel Levis. Uh, Yes, kind of maybe I, maybe, maybe oh. had their Coachella hookup, but then Tom was like, no, 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 I wasn't at Coachella. But then it seems like Sheena Shea spent a lot of time encouraging the relationship. So they all flew to Mexico for Sheena and Brock's wedding, even Katie Maloney post-divorce. But then Katie left before the wedding and allegedly Tom and Raquel um, hooked up at the wedding um, a couple days ago. So... Um, what is the curse that Katie is now holding uh, for Sheena and for Tom and probably for Raquel? Cause for she Tom. didn't really ever like Raquel anyway. I think she had to kind of come around to like trying to be nice. So what are, what are Katie's curses for the three of them? Oh God. Well, I feel like they'd all be rage curses, right? Because she's a renowned rage texter. So there would all be really angry. I think, there's a famous scene where she tells Schwartz that his dick doesn't work. I feel like she's like, may your dick not work. May uh, none of your things work. You know, something like that. I think, I think for Sheena, I think she, God, um, I think that she would wish ill on her new marriage because I feel like that's a very rude thing to do. But obviously if you're feeling very hurt and you're for, 
so-called friend was allegedly encouraging your ex and to get together with somebody that can be really, or just like, you know, or some, or maybe Brock to get called out for his lack of a relationship. Like basically for Brock to be like, you know, like shamed publicly or something. And to be honest, he has a lot, to be, there is some stuff that is not so uh, great about his, like, you know, he doesn't have a relationship with his two older kids, which is not great. So I feel like she, if he, if he fell in the public eye, not like he's like a beloved celebrity, but it's sort of, he got like, you know, was sort of disgraced or whatever. I feel like she would, that would be very satisfying. Um, and then for Raquel, I feel like Katie wouldn't even bother just because I feel like Raquel, like sort of the Lala calling her like a Bambi-eyed bitch, calling that Raquel, like there's sort of like the, like you're talking about that disregard for she's just, oh, she's just sort of like, like a body mm. when, you know, she's a person with in her own right. So I think Kate probably wouldn't even bother. And then what about who is cursing Kyle Richards? And what are they cursing her for? At the you moment, can, uh, uh, you could do uh, you could do old and new. You could go you could go Denise Richards. You could go uh, Lisa Vanderpump. You could go uh, Garcelle Sutton. Like I'm I'm leaving it wide open. I do know that this is a, a, a Max and J Mill favorite to to like roll really hold all of the frustration at, at Kyle. It's like weekly cardio. Um, I think Mauricio is cursing her for bringing him onto this reality television show. Because wasn't it just rumored that he had an affair with somebody that was really ludicrous just or something rumored, like that? There it was, was like some- just rumored. It was rumored years ago. Who knows anymore? All the scenes on camera where and he's I clearly like- flirting with other women at the parties. Yeah, I feel like... Yeah, pro- wasn't it like- just rumored that he was a swinger? Or was that a, t- or that were, was that a text between the three of us? Now I've shown you how the sausage is made. <laughs> was it a rumor that he I, I was think, a swinger? No, I think that I think the, there was just a rumor. I think the rumor is that um, he and Dorit are having an affair on PK and Kyle. Not that they're actually swingers. Yeah, I think that that was, um, there was like a fan theory that someone shared. And I, I feel like, again, because like, he's probably like fed up with the reality TV cameras. And I think like now that Kyle is sort of the like. Planning for your next trip, elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway. Like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Wow! Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Not Queen Bee, but like one of the few cast members. She's one of the longest running cast members on Beverly Hills. I feel like he's probably like silently trying to curse her to get on, get like, to like, so they won't be on the show anymore. Mm. Interesting. Um, I don't know who cursed Kyle, but someone clearly cursed her, and it's been a long-running curse. It's been a long-running Maybe it curse. Kim. That, it was Kim. May, this is what I'm thinking. I think Kim put a curse on the house of Kyle that without Kyle being aware, the entire country, the entire broadcasting community, all the housewives was finally, it will be finally revealed that she really is the evil witch. That's what I think. <laughs> You know what? I think that she's going to come. What was, what was the movie she was in as a kid? It was a Halloween. 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 I feel like she's mm-hmm. going like to, we're going to come back and like, it's going to be revealed that she was the killer. <laughs> <laughs> like it's just, or there's going to be like, like, you know, like a Scooby-Doo take your mask off style scenario. And it was like her all along or something. Um, I just, Oh, that's good. I mean, I think she's a classic reality TV, like manipulate. I mean, everybody sort of manipulates situations, or whatever, but I think she's so, uh, just something about her find like I, I just find so disingenuous, and I think everybody does. I think who's cursing her this time, this season at least, are the editors. I've heard rumor. This is <laughs> completely alleged, but I've heard rumors that she's been getting getting favorable edits up to the last couple of seasons, and like whoever her sort of last friends on the editing boards were have left have since left the show. And so this season, she's not coming out as well as a result. She's well, getting... that's a really interesting. Go ahead. No, sorry. It's really interesting because there was an interview with one of the Bravo editors from a couple of years ago about Vanderpump Rules. And they were saying, I believe how they allegedly gave like Dossie something called like, like a hero edit, I think was the phrase they used. Yep. Basically to make them look better. And whether or not that's true, I don't know. Because, I mean, let's be honest, it's not like Dossie came across great and you know, most of our seasons. But I wonder if that's like a Bravo culture thing where like, again, if, and maybe I think those people may have been fired for saying, or, or I have no idea. It's all alleged, but um, you know, maybe that's something they're trying to consciously get rid of. Yeah, maybe they came. I know that there was a podcast done with an editor and I believe this is alleged that she got fired for this, but that, Bravo was purposefully, or she was purposefully, not Bravo, she was purposefully um, giving Sheena a bad edit. And like... Oh, I remember hearing that. Yeah, and like the evidence of that is during the, um, it's not about the pasta season, when um, they are at the wrap-up for the reunion, 
and they bring out um, the pasta like in like little shot glasses for everybody to eat. The camera stays on Sheena for an uncomfortably long period of time while she is slurping down like that oh, Alfredo. And that was like sort of of an example oh, that's that so she, interesting. Yeah. So I kind of think that the reason why more people are coming out against Kyle this time around and possibly even Rena is because they're getting worse edits as a result. I think it's a really fascinating theory. Look forward to, to trying to decipher it. Yeah. Okay, our last two curses of the game. What curses are Vicki Gumbelson and Ramona Singer levying at Andy Cohen for not maintaining their full-time housewife status? Especially oh. now that Tamara has been brought back to Real Housewives of Orange County and Vicki is still not full-time. And it is, it is now very clear that Ramona will be passed for Roni and Roni legacy. I don't know. They would wish like the, I could imagine them wishing that like, you know, the Bravo clubhouse collapsed on him and like all that was left was the shop key and then like a shock glass slid down, hit him in the head and he died. It's a very evocative image, but I'm not sure why that came to mind, but apparently it came quickly. I think that the curse that they would level against Andy is that um, his looks will fade because as I've said this before, I saw him at BravoCon He's a good-looking young man. He well, he's not a young man. He's very good-looking in person. Yeah, he is. Or you know what? Do you remember what happened? Like, or that like the Botox would freeze in his face, or something that like, like something would go horribly wrong, which is such a terrible thing to even contemplate. But I feel like they really do wish ill on this man. That he would lose his hair. Oh, he does. That he would lose hair. his hair. He does all of that. If it's real or not, we don't know, but maybe like he'll lose his hair. It will be something about vanity because I mean, they might be very evil people, but uh, Andy is nothing if not vain. That's yeah. what I, I mean. To be fair, if, if I, to be fair, if I look like that, I think I'd be pretty vain too, although who knows how he maintains it. I, I think that this was um, an, a, a good round of cursing. <laughs> And we might, we, I think I we're going to, and when we get back into our interview, I think in a few minutes, you and Max can I'm gonna talk, more, talk more about I'm- cursing <laughs> in, in, in previous seasons of, of Beverly Hills. So uh, congratulations. Everybody's a big winner in our Banco party today. <laughs> Wonderful job, panelists. So let's get back into it. You wrote an article for Narratively Hidden History in 2018 titled This Corrupt Boss Was Charged with Sexual Harassment 3,000 Years Ago about the legal record of a village in ancient Egypt. Can you talk to us about this article and how this relates to a Jax Taylor, James Kennedy style rampage from Vanderpump Rules? So this article was based on records from the village of Daryl Medina in Egypt, which is the village where the, um, the, like the builders and artisans who built royal tombs lived in the new kingdom. And there's like a draft of a document. That's like a draft of a letter to the vizier. who's like one like the prime minister, basically from, from a disgruntled worker in the village who details all these accusations against um, his arch rival and really accounts the abuses of power that this man, um, uh, this man, Taneb, committed. Now, even allowing for some bias, which, you know, which is probably likely to happen, 
they're really, this man's Connor's behavior was really abhorrent. They say that um, he stole, you know, this, the writer's job. He stole goods from temples and like royal tombs, which remember Jack stealing all that crystal or stealing all that champagne from Lisa Vanderpump and that Stassi eventually drank. Like that's, you know, like you don't steal. That's like sacred to be stealing from, you know, from, from Lisa. This, this would be damaging sacred ground, lying under oath, assaulting men, which we know Jack was very prone to getting into fights with and without a chunky sweater. And then also possibly sexual harassment. Now, it's the original language, the original Egyptian sort of isn't because we don't have, they didn't have the equivalent of the exact modern legislation, whether it meant exactly sexual harassment or it was adultery or possibly rape. We're not entirely, it's not entirely clear what the exact nature of it could have been, but the amount, um, but it's entirely possible that, you know, sexual misconduct of some kind really disrupted life in this, in this small village. And we also get a lot of accusations of this kind of being verbally abusive, which is extremely well documented on Vanderpump rules of Jack and James saying absolutely vile things to people when, whether they're drunk or not. And I think that that type of explosive rage and really, you know, poor ethical choices of lots of kinds are lots of, in lots of instances is just abhorrent then and now. And I think the idea that we have examples of, of, you know, people behaving badly then and now is sort of, you know, universal. Now, again, it's not like we, we didn't have Panev screaming. It's all about the pasta, but I think, you know, the nature of some of these crimes is, um, is suggestive of these types of people that have issues with rage, have issues with, you know, we don't know anything about substance abuse here, but there's no allegation of that. But we know that there have been allegations um, made against some Bravo stars with rage issues. So, you know, I think it's very suggestive of people who've got lack of respect for others, whatever that may entail. Again, we have no, there's no, there's never been any allegations, as far as I'm aware, against any of the Vanderpump Buell sexual misconduct. But there, the idea of just general misconduct, poor behavior in the workplace, possible assault, is very reminiscent of of people, you know, with tempers acting out in ways that are harmful. So let's talk about the ways that Yolanda had the treatment of both Bella and Gigi parallels the politics that is it Zimri or Zimri? Yes. Uh, Zimri Lin. Zimri Lin. Zimri Lin. Yeah. Um, with the practice of making alliances and building empires through daughters. Um, are there similarities? Are there differences? What can we learn? Oh, definitely. I think that, you know, again, while being conscious that everything is viewed through, you know, some reality TV is scripted, and we see a portion of these people's lives, not their entire lives. There's a lot that raises some concern about some of the stuff that Gigi and Bella have said about like, or, or the way that, you know, they've been portrayed like Bella talking in interviews about being encouraged to get a nose job when she's like a really young teen, or there's that famous scene where Yolanda, Gigi says she's hungry and Yolanda tells her to eat an almond, not almonds, an almond. Yes. And, I remember yeah. And so, you know, again, we see her being very encouraging of the daughter's careers, but I don't, you know, I think that that 
parents getting their own recognition or notoriety be increased through the achievements of their kids is something that definitely is very Kardashian, par- you know, paralleling. But also, mm-hmm. you know, the point of these ancient alliances, Zimri Lim was marrying his daughters to various foreign kings or local allies to increase his own prestige, but also to maintain his kingdom, right? And so in the case of like, you know, Chris Jenner or Chris Kardashian, as she, I'm not sure what she goes by now, or Yolanda Hadid, a lot of their, I, it sometimes seemed to me like they were trying to um, live vicariously through their daughters, whether it's modeling or any of their achievements. Like I yeah. always remember that Kardashian scene where like Kim is like, or um, Kim I think is modeling for something and Chris is like, or like Playboy or something like very, you know, like very. No, you're right. Your example is absolutely right. Yeah. But I was, guess like I, Chris was, was all so over the awkward. Playboy one. But the idea well, is what I. Go ahead. No, I'm John. I, I got so excited. Um, no, nope, what I on. say about where uh, ancient rulers were marrying their daughters, right? Off in Chris Kardashian's example. And this is true. So no one can come after me. Her, she doesn't necessarily marry her daughters off, but what she will do is market their sex tapes. Mm. I think it's interesting. And I also, you know, I think the way in which the daughters become a brand for her is the mom, like, and then yeah. she comes back for her as the momager, right? They reflect on her and she, man- she, not manipulates, but she worked hard for better or worse to, mm-hmm. so that she is, you know, her business savvy reflects on the whole family. And I think right. you can't say she isn't was, brilliant. You, we can't yeah, say that I she mean, isn't for, brilliant at marketing. We just, we just can't. I think so. And I think, you know, the idea of these daughters going out and representing a King as the, whether it's a, almost like a proto ambassador to court, or we get an example of Zimri Lim uh, giving one of his daughters, like a seal, like um, like a cylinder seal to, basically, you know, presumably seal her letters with and almost be like the king's proto-representative at his, at the court that she is at, possibly. And so the idea of extending your influence to, you know, through almost like building a new dynasty of her own, you think of like all of the Kardashian grandchildren. That's a whole nother dynasty that we don't know what they're going to grow up to do, but, you know, you're also yoking, you know, you're, you're associating by, by having, you know, by People have criticized the Kardashians for being famous, for being famous, whatever that, whether people believe that or not, they weren't like, you know, musicians or, or, you know, or artists or something in that way. But by like, for example, Kim, you know, marrying and dating Kanye for all of the issues that, for all of the terrible things that Kanye has said and some of the things that he's done recently, he's a real artist in that way. And Travis Scott is an artist and, like, you know, Trist- Tristan Thompson and, and Lamar Odom are basketball players. These are people with really high, a lot of stuff going on on their own. And so it's also like trying to create a successful network, right? The same way that a monarch would try and create like a lot of alliances. You're building connections. And it doesn't mean that, I'm not saying that Chris Jenner set up her kids like to say, oh, you should date this person because they're powerful. But I think that also if you're a person in a certain societal position, you're maybe going to, or you're looking to, you're a business person you may connect with somebody based on similar business savvy. You know, I think that it's not a coincidence that a lot of some of her, her kids have ended up dating powerful people because they 
are powerful people in their businesses, you know? So whether it's like meets like, or it's, you know, ancient Kings trying to make alliances, the extension of that brand, whether it's brand Zimri Lim or brand Kardashian sort of is a bit timeless. Great. Thank you. So as we were talking about during the game, you know, hating Kyle is part of my weekly cardio. Um, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Can you uh, discuss the parallels between Carlton, Curse, and Kyle on Beverly Hills and the Curse tablets? So I'm trying to remember. So didn't Kyle decide to give um, uh, like a piece of jewelry to Carlton and then somehow um, Kyle, like, Carlton supposedly cursed Kyle's computer. Yeah. Um, that sounds right. And yeah, I trying again, it was a couple years ago, but the, the idea of personal rivalries coming out in cursed tablets, I think it's something, so there are a lot of different types and sort of subgenres of cursed tablets. The ones that at Bath are often what are called prayers for justice, which is where you're like asking a God for retribution or to, find a criminal thing. It's almost like beseeching for help. The other types of like the ones where the people are asking bowels to be turned to water or things like that are, can fall under a lot of different categories, but like could be love curses or could be curses against rivals in business or things like that. So given that both Kyle and Carlton were housewives, I feel like, you know, Kyle could have, um, you know, some, if there were an ancient version of the housewives there, which I feel like there totally should have been, um, that Kyle could, um, or Carlton, if had she existed then, could, or each woman could have put a curse on the other saying like, you know, may she, may she not get, you know, signed for the next season. May her, um, you know, may her Botox wither, may her extensions fall out, may her self tan turn pink or something ridiculous. You know, the idea of sort of striking at the heart of what makes that person a rival I think is, is key. So for if, if you were like a lawyer trying to curse another lawyer that like, so they didn't perform well in court, you would say like, may their tongue be tied or, or may they be silenced or their tongue be heavy or things like that. So that's obviously that's as an order. That's how you speak. So trying to target the things that make, make you famous or make, you know, there's so many things that I think, um, uh, you know, that um, people could be very specific about. I don't think Carlton was a, I don't think she lasted more than like a season or so, but I think that Kyle, you know, could have, or Carlton could have um, uh, had some choice words for Kyle in a curse tablet, or they could have either in some of the, with some of the, you know, beauty treatments that I'm sure housewives would have to undergo. Um, switching gears a little bit to a different piece that you wrote in 2017 for the Atlantic, you wrote an article, how ancient cure-alls paved the way for drug regulation and parts of it, made me think of kind of iconic scenes with Lisa Rinna doing her expensive IV drips with her daughters and that whole season of Orange County where Terry and Heather Dubrow were testing um, various procedures for health benefits. Yeah. You know, like the leeches was one where she, like, she had all those marks like all over in the bathroom at, at that at that party. And so I was wondering if you could elaborate on, on this article and draw out the housewife parallels for us. This article was written around the time that Martin Shkreli was a big point of discussion. 
And there was a first century BCE king um, named Mithridates VI, who lived um, on the southern edge of the Black Sea, who tried to uh, preempt the fact that poisoning was a way to alter the political landscape of the time by creating a um, basically a, a universal antidote. So historians of the time or of later basically had a consulting positions of every scientist and shamans and trying to create a remedy for all poisons. And so it was called called Theriac in later years. And so the ingredients list um, combined like a lot of um, uh, like helpful drugs and medicines with like little bits of poison. So it's microdosing in that case. However, um, what the surviving ingredient lists are really sort of unusual. You get things that like opium, which obviously, you know, there's a soporific effect or could dull pain to things like castoreum, which was found in beaver testicles. So what, anyway, so apparently he allegedly um, crafted this himself with his, with help. And then when the Romans were about to capture him, he tried to die by suicide by taking poison and it didn't work. So the Romans eventually sort of tried to improve on this. Theriac was a version that was created by Nero's physician and um, basically was expanded on this. Eventually these sort of like cure-alls for poison became cure-alls for everything. And they just became things that were, um, that were sort of hawked as um, just remedies for everything possible across the world, really. And so there wasn't any regulation of what could be called a theriac or a cure-all. And, you know, these were like local pharmacies around the world. There were versions in every major city. And so for like local, you know, for poor pharmacies or apothecaries, you could produce like a cheap version. It was just, but a lot of these things could have been harmful. So eventually one of the sort of early predecessor um, in 16th century England of, um, uh, of drug regulation was really like basically pharmaceutical inspectors going in to look at what was going into this stuff that was being sold all around the world because it was, you know, needed to be regulated because it, people could just put whatever they wanted in it and say whatever they wanted. So by the following century, you get um, like pharmacopoeia saying, this is what you have to do for this drug to count as, um, as like, as, as this specific, um, and eventually that helped um, sort of help pave the way for what we now think of as, as drug regulation. So, you know, obviously on the housewives, they're using some remedies that might be unorthodox. I presume they're using, you know, things that are endorsed by doctors or are, um, uh, you know, under the care of a physician. So the thing about this is that this, um, you know, before they were, they were regulated, these different drugs were just compendium, like, the idea is there could be anything in there. Some of it may be helpful, some of it possibly harmful, some of it just sort of random. And I think what people wonder about when they see celebrities trying these uh, these remedies is how, not even just how unusual, but do these things work? Because, because celebrities do it, and obviously they look great, doesn't necessarily mean that it may be as well-researched as it could have been. You hope that they put in the research, but I don't, you know, I don't know, and putting it on TV also could popularize something that could be dangerous and not saying this is dangerous, but there's a possibility. So I think that, you know, they're not going to put in a five minute disclaimer of Lisa Rinna or a doctor explaining everything that could go wrong with 
with a possible procedure, but I think it's always willing to take everything with a grain of salt and do research for just that reason, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And you never know, like, how much advisement they have behind the scenes or, you know, how much money they're spending on all sorts of other sort of cares. And so it could be so deceptive. Exactly. And that's why, you know, when when celebrities say that, oh, I just, not to say the house has in particular, but some celebrities say, oh, I just diet, exercise, and sleep well, or, you know, they may be getting treatments or may have access to things that most people don't. And so they're trying to know the difference between the, what is presented as reality versus what reality is and just realizing that very well may not be what they're telling you may not be the whole story. Oh, it usually is not the whole story. Um, I've been chuckling. Indeed. I've been chuckling ever since you said beaver, beaver testicles, I believe. Yeah, that was fun. I was, I've been chuckling since then thinking about, you know, was it Tommy Hilfiger that was using um, uh, the foreskin or the sperm of whales in order to look young? He was putting patches under his eyes. I have to remember exactly what it was, but then I had this image. This is why I don't do things later in the day. Then I had this image of the housewives <laughs> trying to trying to uh, uh, be discreet about the fact they're using beaver testicles. I don't know. I just went somewhere. As you, you know were what? Describing. That very well could be. That could be on another season of a show. I would not. I would not. You know, be surprised. I think. You know, again, I don't know about whales specifically, but you know, like I can't imagine it's great for beavers. I mean, not just in general, but like whales. Many types of whales are endangered. I can't imagine that's like. Unless it's harvested in a, in a way that I don't know the first thing about it, but I think there's it's not just the viewers, right? It's also like what are the ethics? The animals, of that? yeah. No, mm-hmm. <laughs> no, really. Wait, I mean, I yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I can't imagine that you know harvesting beaver testicles was really regulated in a particularly vigorous way, but you know, I think also when the whole point of both like the toxin Botox is toxin, right? And both like right. Botox is like botulism, which is poison, so. And obviously, there it's it's not inherently poisonous in the way that people do it, but it's always when we're talking about like an antidote against poisons, it always makes me remind me of that. Even what is deemed like the most basic of things that you know, when you're a Bravo celebrity, you get like they, some of them have encouraged preventative Botox or whatever, and it definitely has its purposes both in terms of cosmetic and medical. It definitely has a, there's a reason to use it, but I think the way that it can be. It, you know, sort of everybody seems to advocate for it or it's so widely spread. It's like, well, you know, I think that there's a, there's a lot to it that needs to be investigated, right? Right, right. Okay, so since you also write travel journalism, <laughs> we're talking about another, another writing um, talent of yours. Since you also write travel journalism, how would you rate the Real Housewives vacations? And I, and I also wonder... Where should they visit or not visit? I think that's a great question. You know, I think that in terms of the actual vacations, they most of them look really miserable because they're arguing half the time. However, the places are beautiful that they go to often. So, like, they often have great taste in resorts or, like, things that they go do that are interesting. I think that, you know, that's... And also, they have money and the production budget, I'm sure, is substantial. So, the ability to go and do things or go to places that are are beautiful is really great. I think, I don't think I'd want to go on a vacation with any of them because of, A, I don't think I'd be comfortable in front of a camera like that and B, 
the amount of drama that the arguments I'd be like, oh my God, somebody please just send me home. I can't even enjoy this beautiful setting. But I think, um, you know, it'd be funny to see them visit outer Mongolia because, <laughs> because I feel like it's, I'm sure, like, I feel like trying to get the housewives on the Mongolian steps and like trying to teach them how to ride and like really live in a very different way. It's like very immersive. I don't know if that's a thing that's offered. I don't know if that is a, and I, I don't like, there are actually people that like live and work on the steps and I don't want to, them to get in the way of, of any people trying to live their lives. But if that for some reason was an experience that was offered, I would pay a lot of money to see housewives go like have to, you know, to like live, you know, nomadically if that's the case of this particular experience. And sometimes it's very far and can be very cold. I feel like I'm trying, it's not that I'm trying to torture them. I just, they go on these luxury vacations and I feel like that would be very, a very different experience for them. Right. Right. Well, thank you. That was, that was a great answer. Thanks. Yeah, it was, it was a rather unusual one, but I was trying to think really outside the book. We talked about different Bravo Lebs and franchises, uh, but we still need to know who are your favorite Bravo celebrities, why you rank them the way you do on the top of your list. So I'd say this is not in terms of any, like, I think that they're great. Like they're, I think that they're, these people are great TV, but I think that they're, they're, I don't know, obviously don't know them. So like, I always try and like, when I think of like my favorite Bravo leverage, I think of them, the stage persona as a character, you know, obviously they're people, but I think for me, one of my all time favorites is Sheena Shea, because that girl is willing to, like we're talking about, there's allegations that she was maybe trying to push Raquel and Tom Schwartz together. I was like, her unwitting, her, I'm sorry, her unrelenting commitment to being possibly messy or fomenting drama is brilliant. I don't like, she's like really committed. You know, do you remember when, I think it was a couple of seasons ago on Vanderpump Rules, she had that girl, Dana, whose his mom had just passed away. And she like was like, oh, I'm gonna, she said, well, what would you think about if I brought like, um, uh, like a like a medium and like Dana's like no that would be terrible and she has the medium waiting outside of the car and I'm like again whether she does it intentionally or whether she does it it's just that's the way that she interacts she is very will like she I feel like she exposes more of her life than, mo- than most people on the show yes I mean they've all been very uh, ha- you know they've all seen a lot of messages out of them but she continually seems to be like willing to interact with people in such a way that moves the story forward in a way that is a is organic to who she is, but is not like is not boring. Like she's that like she will create drama by being herself, it seems like. And that, you know, like I had no desire in going to go see Vanderpump, they all live in the valley with the baby, you know? Sheena, I feel like is somebody that creates a storyline because she does things that are provocative or or creates tension or and i'm not again i'm not saying it's deliberate i don't know but i think like she is a provocative agent provocateur in that way and i think that makes her really good storytelling it's definitely true. more it, that's definitely yeah true. it's interesting though that you bring up the um that they all like moved to the valley and like the recent yeah. seasons of like okay now it's just vanderpump with babies or whatever um but like she also moved to marina del rey which is a really weird... She did, and that's... Well, on. that's the thing about Sheena, is that 
she's like, she wasn't in the Valley. She also keeps doing different things. And I think it'd be interesting to see in the next season, now that Lala single, Kristen, Kristen single and Katie single, like if so, because I feel like whenever they're all happy in their lives, they'll gravitate away from Sheena. But then when they're like, if they're not like settled down anymore, even though Sheena's now married and with a the kid, they'll like, now they'll be friends with her again <laughs> because their lives are different. I feel like they'll, you know, I also, you know, Kristen sold her house in the Valley. Um, Katie, I, I know they sold their place. And so I'm interested to see, you know, what the dynamic is like, because she's obviously, you know, for better or worse, you know, for, she seems to, you know, seems to like, where does she, well, I don't know where she was now in Marina Del Rey, but she seems to always sort of like want, want to be on the stage. Do you remember like the very first season when Kostasi was really mean to her? And she was just trying to be in with the group. I feel like she still does want to be in with the group, but she still makes decisions that are a little bit like, well, you're not doing what everybody else is doing, but that keeps it interesting. Like the Marina Del Rey thing, I don't get, but I'm also, I also don't know it that much about like, and it wasn't like a place where people really go to live, but like, it's interesting, right? It doesn't make sense, but it's interesting. Well, and and the whole Brock with it, Brock drama, it's interesting. It's like, Wait, the I, tension of her driving the plot on the one hand, but then, like, choosing a place to live that is so far away from the restaurant and from everyone else filming that was, like, a total power move. That's a good point. Wait, is that's that... I'm sorry. I, I, I have a geography question. So, Marina Del Rey isn't that far from anything. Marina Del Rey is, like, in some ways, the spot you want to be. So all the band no, are coming no, 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 went no. to the valley. No, Marina Del Rey Marina is, is Del Rey LAX. In Los so Angeles, it's it's she was living. Yeah, she I know, was, I, yeah, but like that traffic around LAX. I used to but work. The Bel- but the Beverly. See, I used to work over there. I, so now we're going to fight about it. Yeah, but, but it would take. But me, the issue is that the the. In twenty in twenty eleven, it, it would take me an hour and a half to go from where Sheena lives in Marina Del Rey to the area where Sir is, and because I lived, my, and also I lived by Sir, so, so that's like an hour and a half, like in the afternoon, you know. Um, even though mileage wise, it's not a far. It the traffic was so bad, and so. When she, she's moving there, when the cast is going to the valley, you're talking hours in in the car. Okay, that makes sense. That yeah. makes sense. I just you were making it sound like Marina Del Rey was so away from everything, and and it isn't. But in, in terms of the restaurant and where the rest of the cast is, in terms of filming, okay, yes, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it's I just mean, I, I pure was traffic like, I, I would calculation. Marina Del Rey. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I would absolutely move to Marina yeah. Del Rey. But from what they said on the show, again, I'm not that familiar with LA neighborhoods, so correct me if I'm wrong, but they like, she was like, oh, I like the water, but it's where a lot of people park their boats, but it's not like there's a beach there where you can really, you can see the water, but it's not really like a beach going area, right? It's so like I think a harbor. Like, sort of, there's, there's, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Harborish. Yeah. It's harborish. Um, but, but that's okay. about Sheena. I don't know what she's going to do, and she constantly confuses me. Which is, but she's always interesting, and I feel like that isn't the case for a lot of other reality stars. She's always engaging. I would also make the caveat that she seems like she's always engaging, always interesting, but without being mean. 
Like it's not that same that's sort of the mean nice. that you get from Astasi or the mean you get from Katie when she's drunk texting or just like raging. It's not the mean that you get from the Fox Force Five on Beverly Hills. You know, it's that's, it's a, that's very true. It's it's she a, may have good intentions to maybe. It's kind of like a a cheery sort of chaos. You know, like even if it something lands totally like, bad, like bringing the site, the medium to like wait outside <laughs> the apartment complex, right? Like, it, like no part of that ever factored for her is like do that to hurt them, right? Like she was like, oh, do that for yeah. healing, right? But I think that that, at least in the way that it's edited, comes out as a real genuine sort of attempt, yeah, at, at like at building a bridge. And I think that she may be misguided, but I think her heart often seems to be in the right place. Like it's maybe, you know, maybe needs to think through stuff first, but like, again, when she was saying like a couple of seasons ago, like, Oh, I'm single, I'm single. But then she was like with Max or with Fred or with, I, she, you know, there was all this. And then there was that uncomfortable scene when the music video with Brett. And I was just like, maybe think this through first, but you know, I think that she doesn't, again, I think your point about it not being out of overt malice is in contrast to a lot of other people. She doesn't, she tries to get along, but the, again, this is why I wonder if she's a secret genius because sometimes the things that she does in trying to be nice to people, apparently really can foment like a lot of tension. So it's whether it's, you know, all benign in intentions or whether it's she's just not mean and maybe she wants to push the story forward. I don't know, but I mean, I'm always interested because I don't, I feel like I never, I never know what to expect from her in a good way. Like, whereas like Saucy and whatever, when they were on the show, it was like, okay, sort of more of the same. Yeah. So as we're heading into our wrap up, I like to do a coffee clutch moment or we like to do a coffee clutch moment um, where you get to share your recommendations for further compendium readings uh, to go along with your episode. We've kind of talked in and around romance novels. So if you want to recommend any <laughs> romance novelists here, that's great too. Um, I, I've been reading um, the Katie Roberts dark olympus series and so many of the themes that you've been talking about i'm like oh yeah i've like seen those in those books as she like reimagines greek mythology um but anyway so that was just like one thought i had so uh whatever you want to share is what what should people go read what should they go pick up and you can take that however you want so if people real um you know, some of the, like, the really in-depth studies of things like the Curse Tablets, there are some very specific academic books that I recommend, um, like John Geiger or Christopher Farione, or from Mari, Abraham Malamat, or um, I think it was Trevor Bryce who translated some of the letters. However, if you want to read more about some of these, like, ancient phenomena, I think places like Latham's Quarterly or Alice Obscura, the Atlantic, are sort of, are, are great in sort of sites that deal with these interesting Things also, um, um, let me see. Hmm. I think just sort of trying to maybe follow public historians or things like JSTOR Daily, where there are, you know, interesting discussions of the past and the present. Social media can be a great place for 
following scholars with interesting points of view or like hyper allergic discussions of the relevance of ancient art and or the relevance of discussion of art history and in its many um its many forms i again because my stuff is so sort of broad broadly the topics are so different that i wish there were one source i could point to i could point to carlysilver.com which is my website and just if anybody in particular is interested in reading about i've got a lot of my articles posted there and if they, there's a, a contact section if they're interested in uh, reading more about something specific, I'd be happy to point them in the right direction. That's awesome. So as we wrap up, can you tell us what's next for you and what you want people to know about your upcoming work? Um, should they go to carlysilver.com if they want to connect with you? <laughs> sure. They welcome, they, uh, they're welcome there. They're also Feel free to follow me on Twitter at Carly A. Silver or on Instagram at The Spectacled Legend. Um, I, what's next for me is uh, hopefully enjoying a slightly cooler fall. I think it's been quite hot <laughs> in the city here this summer. But in terms of historical projects, there's nothing in particular that's on deck, but I'm always thinking about possible articles or possible pitches or just trying to consider some sort of, you know, connection between the ancient and modern worlds. And a lot of it doesn't make it into an article, but sometimes it makes it into my brain. So it's, it's trying to sort of just consider about how I, consider how I think about the ancient world in particular. And, you know, the horse stuff is sort of ongoing because horse racing is, um, is, is an ongoing sport. And the romance stuff is something that I, um, uh, I no longer do, but have such a fondness for after so many years. So, you know, you never know, though. Sometimes these things manage to meet in the middle, and there's a great piece of content that comes out of it. Thank you so much. This was absolutely fantastic, and I loved all the places we were able to go with you in this show. It was it was really I really love fun. it. Appreciate, again, I just appreciate your time. It's such a fun... I love that there's equal amounts of passion for Bravo and passion for history and scholarship, and the one of the things which I think I maybe should have said, but I didn't, is that the, there's, there's sometimes the thought that these like pop culture and scholarship are antithetical, but of course they're not. And they can often go hand in hand. And I love that you, your mission is to engage in that, in a way that really shows that using, you know, Bravo as a, and the housewives in particular as like a vehicle for that. I think it's so brilliant. And, you know, like I would hopefully like see you all presenting a Bravo con in, 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 uh, point in the future I think that would be, honestly that would get me to attend BravoCon oh thank you that's so sweet uh, from from your mouth to Andy's ears <laughs> hey you know what you know what you never know I would be I think that I mean that would be you'd get like a, a very different audience but I feel like we could do some there would be very interesting um, uh, discussions to have the amazing thing is that Max ended up featured in the BravoCon commercial for the year that they had to cancel oh, during did? the pandemic. Yeah, there was like a there was like a couple seconds where he was just like most of the screen, like screaming outside of the first BravoCon. And when Jessica and Max went, they actually um, got to ask a question at the Southern Charm panel, and then a bunch of people picked up those responses and wrote articles about what happened at the Southern Charm panel, but they just kept That's not mentioning fabulous. Jessica's name. <laughs> as the person oh, who asked the question sorry. so so it was kind of funny because like even as the first bravo con so happened rude. jessica and max 
kind of were all over it, but it didn't necessarily come back tied to us in that way, but they had a lot of fun. Where was BravoCon? Was it, was it New York or LA? New York. It was New York. Okay, was, that must have been a cool. cool thing to go. Well, we have to downplay it because Casey was pregnant at that point and couldn't travel, gotcha. so we have to say it wasn't that great. It was so cool. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. It sounds like it was terrible. <laughs> I tried to live vicariously through them and maybe had a pregnancy temper tantrum or two. <laughs> hey, you know what? What it Honestly, all that it means is BravoCon's not going anywhere. So hopefully, you know, maybe there'll be a BravoCon junior you can bring. Um, it can bring the next generation to. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's really changed our TV viewing because suddenly we have a toddler who is now repeating everything they hear and realizing that, oh, we maybe don't want him screaming at somebody that they're a basic bitch. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> You know what? Or do you? Or do, or do you? We? You never know. Do we? I, I, I do not know. Um, a couple nights ago, he looked at me and he pointed at me and goes, mama's a bitch and I was kind of like yeah oh I, my goodness I, I kind of am he's two and a half today but um I was like maybe we uh, should uh watch after he's gone to sleep <laughs> wow well that I mean you know what at least he's not like Dorindan yelling Giovanni everywhere he goes you know though maybe that's next it's true and he did use everything grammatically correct so I was also like I'm not totally <laughs> mad so uh, you know, lesson learned. Right, I guess take a, yeah, take, take the win so you can guess them, I imagine. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you all so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a fantastic thank rest you. of your weekend. Thank you. As always, you can find us at historiansonhousewives.com, where you can propose your own episode topic, ask us questions, and send us feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at historiansh. And don't forget that you can like and review the podcast on your podcast platform. You can also find us at our Etsy shop, Historians Housewives. This episode was powered by Acast. Thank you, Carly Silver. This show was brought to you with the support by Barbara and Mark Spear, Saddleback Community College, Molly Callahan, Dr. Joaquin Galarza, Courtney Crow, Lara Loper, Kim Bettendorf, Louis Dios, and the Agipon Group. And remember, scholars do bravo too. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.